right? Lock it. Now it's done. Sweet. Okay, so we're going to be in Genesis chapter 3, and we're going to cover the whole chapter tonight. So my job, um, what they asked me to do, is just to kind of walk us through the text and point out a few things, and then Rachel's going to come up and talk about some of the themes that come out of this passage. Last week, Scott, just in case you missed it, Scott talked through Genesis 2, and he walked us through that, and um, he pointed out that we have a specific function as people that are created in the image of God. And he said that, namely speaking, our function is to um, do two things. We have two functions, to represent God and to reflect his character. And then what happens, what we're going to learn today, or what we're going to look at today, is in chapter 3 what happens is both of those things kind of start to fall apart um, because sin enters the world. And so that's what we're going to look at. So we're going to experience, and then we experience this fallout that we're going to read about today. We experience that still today, like in 2018 at Oklahoma State. Um, And so that's what we're going to look at. Now, here's the deal. Um, This might sound like it is way off topic, but you have to just stay with me because it's always important that I somehow figure out how to include Christmas in most of the things I talk about because I do love Christmas. Anybody in here love Christmas? Anybody? Okay, that is not as many of you as should love Christmas. So just humor me, and everyone raise your hand and act super excited. Anybody love Christmas? Oh, yeah, me too. Cool, we should have a Christmas party. Christmas is awesome. Well, when I was two years old, when I was um, two years old, I also am a sinner, um, surprise, rebellious, and um, I loved the Christmas tree in our living room, and I loved the Christmas tree so much um, that I would wanted to go and touch it and pull on it. The problem is that whenever I just looked at the lights and I just was kind of drawn to them and I pulled on the tree, the tree would literally fall over on top of me. And at that time, when I was two, we had a real tree. So literally, a tree would fall on top of me several times during the Christmas season when I was two years old. And here's kind of how this whole thing would happen. I would be walking, kind of wobbling around the living room, and my mom would see me start to go towards the tree, and I knew I wasn't supposed to go, so I'd kind of take a few steps, and then I'd turn around and look at her, and my mom would say to me, no, no, Morgan, and I'd look at her, and I'd just kind of take one more step, and she'd say, no, no, Morgan, and I'd kind of take a few more steps, and she'd say, Morgan, no. And I pretend to do something else for a minute. And then I take a few more steps. And then I get all the way over the tree. I reach for it. And all of a sudden, my mom would turn into this scary person and jump up and say, No, Morgan! No! And she'd have to jump and get me. But even at two years old, even at two years old, I knew what I was doing. I knew that my mom had set a boundary for me. And I was intentionally drawn to this Christmas tree. And regardless of whatever boundary my mom had set for me, I was going to cross it. Because I was going to touch the tree because that's what I wanted to do as a two-year-old. And we see this in our lives. We see this in our lives all over the place. It's, it's the child whose first word used to explain defiance to an instruction their parents gives, gives them is the word what? What do they say? What is one of the first words you learn when you're little? No. That's one of the first words you learn. Oh, really, Mom? Oh, really, Dad? I know I'm this tall. But uh, I'm just going to go ahead and tell you that I'm not going to do what you want me to do. No. No. It is the child that's two years old who, uh, when after their mom says no, looks her square in the face and takes another step towards the Christmas tree. It's an elementary student, maybe this was you, who gives his mom a half-truth 
when she asked if he cleaned his room or if he obeyed the babysitter. It's the junior high student who starts to rebel in darkness and secrets and starts to hide his rebellion from his parents or his teachers for the first time. It's a high school student who openly rebels whenever their sin is called out and made public. It's a college freshman who sees living on their own as freedom, not only from their parents' rule, but also to become a god of their own, claiming um, as their personal kind of college experience to do whatever they want. It's the wife who gets angry and lashes out when she is out of control. And it's a husband who decides to rule with an iron fist to no one, to bow to no one other than himself. It's a parent who loses their cool with their two-year-old or gives into sin, into the sin of their 15-year-old. It's rebellion. That's what it is. It's rebellion. It's succumbing to temptation. It's treachery. It's deceit. It's sin. And that's what we're going to be talking about. We're going to start by reading the text together in Genesis chapter 3. And if it's okay with you all, after that, I'd like to just share with you, very simply, seven things that I believe we can either learn about this text from reading it or from this text by reading it. So let's read it together. Genesis chapter 3 goes like this. Now, the serpent was far more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you're going to be like God knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to her eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and she ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves to fig leaves together, and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees in the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and so I hid myself. He, God, said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, "Uh, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and so I ate it. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. 
In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all the living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin, and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned, away to, that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. That was the word of the Lord. <laughs> That's what it says. All right. Are you ready for these seven things that we can learn about this text or from this text by reading this text? Point number one, if you're taking notes, is this. We see that Satan is at work through the serpent. Now, sometimes if you grew up um, going to church, um, then what, what might have happened is you might be told that the serpent is Satan himself. And as I was researching this, I thought this was interesting because there's kind of debate about that. And so that's why it was something I wanted to share with you. Later on in the text, because of some of the things that we'll see um, how God addresses him, um, we'll see that he is, like, could be Satan. And then in the New Testament, um, John seems to point him out as uh, Satan in the writing of Revelation. He calls him that, like, you are this serpent from the beginning, that ancient serpent, the devil, Satan. And so because, like, in light of the New Testament, we liken the um, snake, the serpent, to Satan. But if in just a reading of this text, and actually, really, in a reading of the entire Old Testament primarily, there's really, um, there's evidence, strong evidence, we know with, with certainty that Satan is at work here, but we don't know with certainty that this is actually Satan. Does that make sense? So, now here's the deal. Whenever it talks about serpent, and it says at the very beginning of this, this now the serpent is the most crafty beast of them all, that, we might hear that and go, ha ha, yeah, because it's Satan. Okay, but whenever, like, the people of the Old Testament would have read that, they would have just said, okay, it's a crafty beast. So, what that means is, is it's like, it's shrewd. It, it can be cunning. And in, sometimes in the Bible, the, word, the same word for crafty is shrewd, and it actually is seen as, like, not a bad thing. And then other times, it is seen as a bad thing. So, this is not really, it's not like this... Um, almost like a cartoon version where it's a snake that whenever you watch it with little kids, you can tell it's bad. You know what I'm saying? Like there was something very deceptive about its nature. There's something very deceptive about its nature. So we don't know for sure if this is Satan, but we for sure know it's at least closely related to Satan or empowered by Satan, used somehow correlated to Satan's work. Because God created everything good. So this snake didn't just become bad on its own. It didn't just start to deceive on its own. There's something else, another power at work here. 
through this beast. So that's the first thing. The second is this, and this is something I think we can learn um, about this text, but also learn from this text for ourselves. The serpent speaks half-truths. I don't know if you caught that. Whenever you see his interaction with Eve, he doesn't just say like exact opposites. He questions God's authority. He questions what God says. And then he kind of speaks some half-truths. If you read what he, um, not the question he asks Eve, but what he says in response in verses 4 to 5, um, it says this. <clears throat> the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. Okay, so what he's, what he's saying is he's thinking of this idea of like, you're not just going to like take a bite of that and just fall over dead. And actually, as you read this, you realize she doesn't take a bite of it and fall over dead. So there's actually a little bit of truth to that. But it's definitely not wholly true, because death is what comes, and she is going to be kicked out of the garden in the presence of God. So he's speaking the half-truth there. You will not surely die. And then he says, For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Knowing good and evil. And that's also a half-truth. Because their eyes are open to something after they eat the fruit. Remember what their eyes are open to? Because they ate the fruit and then they realize they are naked. Their eyes are open to something. It's their nakedness. So now they know good and evil because of this thing that's happened. But their sense of guilt makes them afraid to meet God. And they don't immediately die physically, but they are completely kicked out of the garden. The source of life. The tree of life. So here's what I think how this applies to us now. Here's something that I think we can learn from this. I love how one of the commentaries I read put it. It says this, Temptation is most effective when it dangles something before us that can be easily interpreted as good. Temptation is most effective when it dangles something before us that can be easily interpreted as good. I heard um, a guy preach one time whenever I was at Bible college. And he said he, he was giving his testimony. They had asked him to specifically come in and give his testimony. And it was talking, he was talking about his life. And um, he had been a minister for a long time. And then he had uh, sinned in some really great ways, and it cost him his ministry. Okay? Um, he had an affair on his wife. Um, he got really into uh, alcohol after that. There were just several things. Okay? And so he no longer gets to, like, he doesn't lead anywhere. And the only reason Ozark asked him to come in is specifically to give his testimony for us to hear about this fall of this guy. Okay? And this is how he described Satan, Satan's work in his life, um, and him choosing and, and, and succumbing to temptation. He said it's almost like Satan like, had all these things. Like, Have you ever been in a store when you're little, and a little kid just wants everything they see? And if they don't get it, they throw a fit. Have you ever seen a kid throw a fit because their parents don't buy them something that they see that they want? He said, I felt like I was like in this store and Satan was just displaying all these things and he made them look so good, but all of them, the price tags were all empty. And it's like he just took so much pleasure and once I decided I was going to purchase these things, filling out the price tags. And the price tags were more than I thought. Hey, this is going to cost you your marriage. Okay, and this one's going to cost you your children and being able to raise them. Hey, this one's going to cost you your ministry. Hey, by the way, this sin, it all leads to death. 
He described it that way. And I think that, that that's kind of a true, that this is a true statement, that temptation really is. It is most effective when it dangles something before us that can be easily interpreted as good. And you guys have experienced this. I know you have. In one way, shape, or form, Satan has taken something that is a sin, and he has, he has kind of um, figured out how to twist it to where there's a little bit of truth in it, and we buy into that, hook, line, and sinker. And we even sometimes know that it's wrong. And we've been following Jesus for a while, we know kind of deep down. And so we start like kind of getting defensive if anybody asks us about it, or we start avoiding certain people that we know have the Holy Spirit that maybe could be able to like sense it in us. We start like doing these, taking these measures to kind of distance ourselves from the people of God and the Word of God and the Spirit of God, because I think deep down we know. I think we know that we've given in to some temptation. Um, another, another guy said it this way. He said, Satan must appeal. Eh, I don't know about that. I think he does appeal sometimes. Satan appeals sometimes to our God-given appetite for goodness in order to win his way. To prevail, evil must leech not only power and intelligence from goodness, but also its credibility. From counterfeit money to phony airliner parts to trustworthy look on the face of a con artist, evil appears in disguise. Hence, it is treacherous. Hence, the need for the Holy Spirit's gift of discernment. Hence, the sheer difficulty at times of distinguishing what is good from what is evil. This is why it is so important for us as believers to be in the Word and in community and vulnerable with one another about the things that, that come into our lives that we think, I don't know if this is right or this is wrong. This is why it's not only important for us to share those things, but for us in love to speak truth to one another, to point out each other's blind spots that we might not see. This is why those things are so important. Because Satan, and this is like all throughout Scripture, not just here, he is tricky. He's like a master of tricks. He is a master of lies, and he will lie to you, not because he wants you on his team, not because he cares about you, but because he hates God. That's why he does what he does. And that is something that I think we can learn from this text. The serpent speaks half-truths. I still think he does that today. Okay, next one. Those, I'm going to read this a couple times in case you're taking notes. Those God put in place to govern the earth, or you can just put Adam and Eve, but I'm talking more like human being, okay? Those God put in place to govern the earth and rule over all the animals, rule over the creation, is something that Scott referred to last week. Instead, what they do is they rebel against God and they obey one of its creatures. It's like a role reversal that happens. God puts them here to rule over the creatures, and instead they obey a creature. That's super strange. There's something off here. Again, like I was saying, Scott showed us last week that two of our functions as people created by God um, are to represent him, to represent God by governing, ruling over creation, and then to reflect God's character. And Adam and Eve fail in both of these respects in Genesis chapter 3. They instead rebel against God, and obey one of the created creatures instead of ruling over the created creatures that were created by God. And then they fail, and they fall into believing this idea um, that the serpent, they fall into this idea the serpent gives them, that eating the fruit would make them like God, knowing good and evil. Okay, so here's a lie they're believing. 
right? It says they're made in whose image in chapter 2? God's image. And then Satan comes and he says, oh, you know why God doesn't want you to do that? Because then you'll be like him. Why do they need to eat fruit to be like him? They are already like him. <laughs> They're already made in his image. And so they do two things. That, that this, these ways that God created them, this purpose for which God created them, some of the functions of who we are, they fail in both respects. They fail in both respects. They do not rule over. They do not represent God by ruling over. Instead, they, they obey a creation instead of the creator. And they also do not believe that they are reflecting his character. They start to question that. And instead believe this serpent. And think that somehow they don't have something that they need to have. That they want to have. They want to have. Okay, next one. This one I think is another one that we can learn um, about the text, but also something we can learn from the text to apply to us. The act that Adam and Eve faced, the act that Adam and Eve faced was one of autonomy. The act that Adam and Eve faced, this is something that was super interesting to me that Rachel and I talked about a lot um, as we were reading through um, and studying this passage. It's one, the act that they faced was one of autonomy. So, you may need to know what the word autonomy means. Not going to lie, I may have had to just refresh my memory to make sure I wasn't getting it wrong. Okay, no shame. Should have turned off the podcast for that little caveat, but that's okay. So I did, Kate, and I looked it up, and all it means is like you're governing yourself. It's essentially when you're autonomous, you're not dependent. Okay, so the act that Adam and Eve faced was one of autonomy, which means being the boss of themselves. That's this act, that's this choice that they decided to make, being the boss of themselves. So choosing to make their own decision apart from the Lord. C.S. Lewis um, talks about this idea a lot, and he actually says that the privilege and freedom, um, that the privilege of freedom and joy of dependence on God, that's how he talks about this idea of depending on the Lord. He said God had given Adam and Eve this joy and freedom in depending on him. But somehow it got it twisted in their mind, Satan, with his lies, saying that, no, your dependency on the Lord, no, like God's just kind of like some tyrant. And so your dependency on him does not bring about freedom. It does not bring about joy. And I think the, what, why that applies to us today is because that's the entire, like, that is a huge message that the world continues to send. That you have the right to choose whatever the heck you want to choose in your life. You have the right to do what you want, say what you want, go where you want, act how you want, treat others um, how you want. You have the right to date who you want, to um, decide you're going to go into whatever job you want. You have, you have the right to those things. That's what the world says. And the, the idea of, of depending on someone else instead of you being able to be the boss of your own life is seen as weak. Or it's seen as like you being a slave to somebody. But that is such a lie. Because here's what happens. is Adam and Eve, they do. They decide they're going to be this, make this autonomous choice. They're going, to be, they're going to judge what they ought to do. And they're going to do what they think they ought to do. They're not going to depend on what the Lord is saying. And so they take this fruit and they eat it. And what happens is, just like today, you cannot escape being dependent on God. (laughs) You can't. Without God, we do not exist. We don't exist. 
And so people think, yeah, I'm not going to be ruled by his, I'm not going to be ruled by his word. I'm not going to be ruled by his people. I'm not going to be ruled by his spirit. Man, it's just so restrictive. And so I'm going to make my own decisions. And what you find is that shifting from your dependency on God to your dependency on yourself is still a form of dependency. And you're a lot crappier of a God than God is. And so what happens is you find yourself just enslaved to all sorts of sin, to all sorts of sin. Um, my son's here with me, and I asked if I could use this, so don't feel awkward whenever I'm using this as an example. So <laughs> I just wanted you guys to know that I asked him. Okay, but he had to like work work this program for a while, and he got spooked, and he felt like he had literally just been trapped for a long time and been forced to do something for a long time. So he decided to run away. He said he's going to run because he just wanted to be free. I don't want to have these rules. I don't want anybody telling me what to do. I want to do my own thing, live my own life, blah, blah, blah. And so he runs. And what he discovered in the six weeks he was on the run is that actually what he was experiencing was not freeing at all. His life sucked big time. He had nowhere to go. He had nobody that he really could trust. He didn't know who to call. He didn't know what to do. He didn't know where he was going to get his food from. He didn't know, like, man, I thought that being on my own, like, if I could just escape this thing that's ruling over me and I could just run and be free, then I really would be, you know, free. It would be good. It would be fun. But what he realized is that actually it was just, like, heavy and burdensome and, like, the result of sin (laughs) and awful. And I think that we still do that today. And it really, I think, is tempting when you go to college. Because kind of like I was saying earlier, I think that we go to college and we think, man, I can't wait to go to college because then I'm not going to have to listen to my parents. I'm not going to have to follow the rules of my parents. I remember having, I think I've told you guys this before, I had an entire list that I kept in my room. This is my form of rebellion in high school. Um, I had an entire list that I kept in my room, and I would write down everything I'm going to do when I leave my house. And I had a list of movies I was going to watch that my parents wouldn't allow me to watch. And I had a list of things I was going to wear that my parents were not, go- were not allowing me to wear. And I had a list of friends I was going to hang out with that my parents did not let me hang out with. And I just had this whole entire thing. When they can't rule that over me, when I don't have to depend on them, because they can't tell me what to do, because I'll be 18. And you know what that means. That means, like, I can make whatever choice I want, because I'm 18. Yeah, that's what that means. And then I got out and I realized even the slightest ones of those choices that I made actually were not good for me. Like, I remember watching a movie that I shouldn't have watched, that my parents were right, and then, like, continually having those things, like, come into my mind long after I had watched the movie. And it wasn't good things. It wasn't freeing things. It was things that made me more tempted to sin. I realized that, like, like wanting, wearing what, something as simple as I have the right to wear what I want to wear, something as simple sounding as that, is just think about what you're saying. <laughs> like, I have no concern for how others view me. I have no concern on whether I'm going to be tempting to someone else. I have no concern for the fact that I'm a representative of God or that he created my body. I just want to wear what I want to wear. And we think somehow it's going to fix us. Like, it's this freeing experience. And I think it goes back to that half-truth. Like, the world gets that so wrong. 
They get it so wrong. You, you know how to find freedom? You know how to find joy? That only comes through a relationship with Jesus Christ. That's it. And in following him, you realize that you actually were chained and locked um, to sin. And that he just completely breaks that for you. That in your dependency on him, you really can find, like, I don't know, life. It's super, super freeing. It's not burdensome. It's not burdensome. The world was wrong. The world was wrong. Okay, next one. We're almost finished. Next one is this. This is something that you got to know. This will be on a test someday. I promise you. Like some Bible test. <clears throat> Genesis 3.15 is the first announcement of the gospel in all of scripture. If anybody ever asks you, where, where does Jesus come on the scene? Where does the mention of Jesus come into play? It's in Genesis 3.15. It's the first time it's mentioned. Genesis 3.15. I think that's super cool because we have the fall, perfect created order, and then we have this detriment to that, our sin, and in the midst of the story about our sin, the promise of Jesus is there. The promise of Jesus is there. Genesis 3.1 and 3.14, um, the serpent is noted in 3.1 as the most crafty beast. And then in um, 3.14, he's noted as the most cursed beast among everybody. Um, I just think that's kind of an interesting thing. So he's now the most cursed. And then he says this in 3.15. I'm going to put this enmity between you and the woman and the seed of the woman. And then I, some, at some point, the descendants of this woman is going to um, crush the serpent's head, but the serpent is going to strike um, her heel. What that's referring to right there is Jesus. And there's a lot of commentaries that might go back and forth, but for the most part, like 95% of them recognize this as Jesus, as the promise for Jesus. It's called progressive res- revelation which means that something that's revealed here and then you see it come to play as God continues to reveal it throughout the scriptures. And we believe that's what happens. Um, one of, so there's some things about the Passion of the Christ that I think are wacky and weird, but one thing that I do like about the Passion of the Christ is this scene where um, Jesus is being tempted in the garden. How funny is that? In a garden, he's being tempted. Um, ironic, right? Not so much read about it, okay, he's being tempted, he's being tempted in the garden, and he asked the Lord to take this cup, take this burden from me, because he knows I'm about to go die, I'm about to die on a cross, and the Lord doesn't take the burden from him, but in this scene, what happens is it shows this really uh, weird picture of how they personify Satan, and it's creepy, it is creepy, and it's dark, and she, uh, she, it's a woman, and she whispers something. Like she says something to Jesus. And Jesus says something else, which is, I think, like, not as I will, but as you will. And when it says this, it shows, all of a sudden inserted into the scene, it just shows a heel stomping on this snake. And the point of it is to make you go, oh my goodness. This is like going to, this is what it's talking about at the very beginning when the fall came. Out from Satan is this serpent, nasty, wicked serpent, and Jesus is going to crush it. But it will bruise his heel because he does die on a cross in the most gruesome form of of death that we can imagine. 
he does like lie uh, lie um, in in a tomb. He's in a tomb for three days, and then he rises from the grave. And again, it's one of the things I love um, about that movie, because it's the moment that Jesus rises from the grave. It shows Satan again, and Satan is defeated in a very real sense, freaking out because it thought it had him. And he didn't. He didn't have him at all. It's pretty stinking cool. Genesis 3.15, first announcement of the gospel. Don't miss it. Write it down. Tell somebody tomorrow. 3.15. All right. <clears throat> Two more. Here's the next one. This right here that we look at when we read this story of the fall is um, the beginning of a long pattern of sin and temptation that we're going to see throughout the entire Bible. So we have the creation account, the creation narrative, and then we have specifically God creating man and woman, what their function is um, in this world that he's created, in this garden that he's given him, and then now enters in sin. They succumb to temptation. They actually sin, and um, sin is now going to be what happens throughout the rest of the Bible. Rachel's going to come up and talk a little bit more about that, so I'm not going to talk too much about the different sins that we see in the Bible. I just want to talk here about some of the curses that they say directly in the text relating to, to this sin that they committed, okay? So here, some specific curses are God curses three, in a, three people in a row. He curses Satan first, and then he curses the woman, and then after that, he curses um, Adam. So one of the, one of the tragic results um, is this ongoing, that we're going to see because of the fall, is this ongoing damaging conflict between a husband and a wife, um, driven by sinful behavior of both the husband and the wife, in rebellion against their respective God-given roles and responsibilities in marriage. Whenever it talks in here, I'm going to read it to kind of help remind you. To the woman, he says, I will surely multiply your, your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Then he says, your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Okay? And he shall rule over you. Those passages mean a couple of things. Some people think that pain and childbearing literally just means it's painful to have children. That could be what it's saying here. Another really interesting um, way that some people interpret this that we got to talk about was this idea of anguish in the childbearing process. And um, why it was interesting to me is because I've seen that with people. It's this idea that a woman, her desire to nurture or love um, or recreate, right, um, they're constantly worried about this. So like, man, my, my clock is ticking. If I don't get married soon so I can have a baby three years later, then I won't be able to have a baby. And the anguish that comes from, from women who are trying to conceive and can't. And um, the anguish that comes from women who, who give birth and then it's a stillborn child. And so that's what, what, what some of the commentaries talked about is, is that this is pain in childbearing, but it's also pain in this childbearing, this entire process. And then, and then it makes more sense with the next verse. The next verse talks, a lot, talks about how your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And we see, we see this at odds with one another, too. The two primary ways that this is interpreted is either as kind of this fight for control in the house, um, in, in a household, and um, the other way it's described is that this woman desires the husband because of this, this innate desire to, to, be, to recreate. And so because she's the one that needs him to be able to do that, she's in the more vulnerable position. So those are kind of the two different um, interpretations 
of what that is talking about. Of what that is talking about. I'm just going to be honest with you guys. I, when I read this, how I've always understood this is more of like the strife that would be between them two um, wanting control and then a husband ruling in the wrong way, both ruling in ways um, that aren't as God created them to be. That's kind of how I've always read this. So the, all the childbearing things are things that were new to me and reading. Okay? So that's kind of how I've always understood it, just so you guys know. And then to Adam, he says, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Here is what's going to happen. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. And then it goes on talking about how the ground's going to produce thorns and thistles and it's going to be hard to bring food from the ground. Okay? The, the curse here for Adam is not that he's going to have to work. Work is not the curse. It's this idea that now this curse is going to be agonizing. It's going to require the sweat of his brow. It's going to be painful. The, the earth's not going to make it easy for him to bring forth fruit. Whereas before, God had completely provided that for them. Now it's going to be more difficult. I do think it's cool that God still feeds them. He didn't have to do that, by the way. But it is going to be more difficult for Adam. It's going to be more difficult for Adam. And then the biggest thing is actually at the end of verse 19 when it says, um, this is by the sweat of your face, you're going to eat this bread. So again, it's going to be this hard thing. And then it says, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. That right there, death is the result. Ultimately, death is the curse. You are going to die. <laughs> That's what God says. Sorry about you. No, he didn't say that. But he does say, you are going to die. He does say that. So that's kind of what he says. I do want to point out one little thing before my last. It's something else that Rachel and I got to talk about quite a, a little bit. Um, in verses 20 and 21, it's like these weird two verses of like, in this heavy chapter about rebellion and sin and the consequences of that. Um, and brokenness, there's like these two really sweet verses that I don't know why else they'd be in here other than just the kindness and provision and greatness of our God. It says this, the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all the living. It's like, that's weird. Why did that just like, she's already been talked about as being Eve. It's just kind of this little caveat. It's like he still went on, calls her Eve. She still is the mother of the living. Like people are still going to come forth. And then this, and the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments, garments of skin and clothed them. Like, at the end of chapter 2, they were naked and felt no shame. They ate of a fruit, and the first thing they realized is they were naked and ashamed. And God comes in, and even with this consequence of sin that is rightfully deserved because of their actions, even though they chose to make this own judgments on their own, he comes in and he chooses to clothe them. But to me, this speaks of his kindness and goodness <laughs> to us. I think that's really cool. And the last point that I think that we can learn from this text and for our lives is this. The result of sin is always death. The result of sin is death. 
death not just is our eventual end someday, um, but it's this idea that after this point in this text, God is going to remove them from the garden. And the death that, that is immediate here is a death that is re- being removed from the presence of God. And there is going to be something that, that causes us to struggle in our relationship with the Lord for like until we get to go be with Him. And it is our sin. And so that is kind of what I want you to think about. The result of sin is death. So Satan was wrong, half right. They didn't die right away, but they do die eventually. And they are out of the garden pretty immediately. Pretty immediately. The result of sin in the garden is the exact same result of sin today. Death. However, the God of the garden is the exact same God of today. And as you all know, because, you know, Genesis 3.15, he already has a plan in mind to save us. He already has a plan in mind. To save us. So that's what I got for you today. Um, I think we'll take a... Do we, they are delicious. Okay, Genesis 3. Um, Morgan did an awesome job walking through a lot of this for us. I, my head was kind of spinning, to be honest with you, as I was trying to get ready um, for tonight. And I feel like there are so many things that we could say so many directions that we could go when we're talking about something as big um, as the fall of humanity and the fact that we are a fallen people, um, but what Jesus has done for us. And I know that a lot of the groups, um, a lot of table groups that are kind of walking through the text before we come um, on Thursday nights just had a lot of good conversations, uh, but also had a lot of questions. And so I hope that it goes without saying, um, but I still just like to say it. Um, that that's what we're here for. And so we're going to dive in tonight and we're going to talk some more. Um, but if, if you have further questions about things um, or if you just want to talk more, we, we are here for that. And I know that Scott or Morgan or myself or Drew, when he's back, Drew's on a mission trip in Japan right now. Um, but we would love to have those conversations with you um, and, and truly want to um, help you understand the Bible more. So especially on a huge a huge topic like this. Just know, that's what we're here for. Um, so, as, as Morgan kind of broke down for us, um, we see hugely in Genesis 3, um, this temptation and the giving in to and sin entering the world. Um, and she kind of alluded to, but you don't have to spend more than five minutes with a very small child to believe that we are, in fact, a fallen people and that sin does not have to be taught um, and so my husband's, and she's precious and I love her. I won't, okay, I won't say who she is in relation to my husband. One of his family members um, one time at Christmas tried to say, you know, that I know that, you know, people try to say that sin is just in us, but I just don't think that that's true. And as she's saying that, our, our darling yet yeah, but sinful two-year-old, it's always a two-year-old, always, is like running around like crazy at Christmas, you know, and Ryan just kind of used that opportunity and was like, but do you see, you know, we are saying no, and, and this is what's happening. Nobody has to teach a child how to lie. Nobody has to teach them how to sneak. Nobody has to teach them how to um, rebel and how to want that freedom that Morgan talked about, that I want to decide, that I 
want to be in charge. Um, and one of the really, really cool things about the Bible that we're going to look at tonight is um, that it tells, I hope you know this, it tells, it tells, it's a lot of stories that tell a big story, right? That tells the big story of God, of who he is, of his love for people and the way that he redeems them. Um, and so we're going to take a look at kind of some patterns. Um, I had to really, I had to, I had to narrow it down and cut because we could go and go and go. Um, but I kind of want to look at some patterns that we find in the Bible regarding sin. Um, and you'll see that that can be, that can very much be true in our own life today. Um, but we see these patterns over and over um, in, in stories, and it really is this mirror for us um, that we can, we can look and we can see and we can identify in different stories um, the themes of sin that is, um, as, as we'll see next chapter of Genesis, so crouching at our door that longs to master us and to own us. And so this is the pattern that I want you to kind of watch for is I want what I want. I have an authority. That authority is God. I'm going to ignore and I'm going to have a response that is disobedience that says, I'm going to do it anyway. And over and over, we're going to see this pattern equals one thing. Death. As Morgan said, that sin equals death. Eventual death, yes, our bodies are deteriorating, but spiritual death, separation, from a right and holy God, okay? So we see it. Let's walk through. We'll start Genesis 3. Um, we'll see this template moving through Scripture. So we see Eve, okay? She's there. She's in the garden. What does she want? She wants to be like God. She sets herself up suddenly in a place when the serpent says, Did God really say? Did he really say? That question right there puts her in a judgment seat. Did God really say that? She's going to ignore the authority that, yes, he did say. And she decides that it looks good. I desire it. I want it. I'm going to take it. I'm going to do it anyway. And death is a result. That's the first one we see entering the scene. Uh, moving through the Bible, we could go to Exodus 32. Um, at this point in Israel's history and in Scripture, um, the Israelites have been enslaved in Egypt for a very dark 400 years, um, had been oppressed, a lot of wickedness taking place, a lot of things happening. And God says, I am going to rescue this people, right? And so God sends Moses, who takes Aaron along with him. Um, and all these amazing and incredible things happen, right? We see the plagues. Okay, so all of Egypt is essentially destroyed after plague, after plague, after plague. Um, what the Lord is doing because um, Pharaoh refuses to let God's people go. Um, and so God is, is raining down judgment on all the land of Egypt. And finally, um, finally, uh, we see that, that they say, okay, you can go. Now that Egypt has been completely destroyed and there has been a ton of deaths, by the way, um, 
we will let you go. And so Israel is leaving and they are escaping. Um, but somehow, again, the Egyptians change their mind and they decide, no, we're going to go after them. How could we have let them get away? Um, and so another miracle after miracle is happening um, with the Lord and his people in that he parts the Red Sea and he allows his people to walk through on dry ground and then he closes the water back up over the army that was pursuing them. Um, and we watch God's kindness as he cares for them um, he feeds them. He provides water for them. He's guiding them. All of these things are happening, and God gives them the Ten Commandments, right? Um, and the, the first of which, all of them are worship God, and this is how you shall live. But, um, you know, you shall love the Lord your God only, and you're not to make any graven images for yourself. You're not to be like the nations and the people that are around. You're to follow me. Um, and this is what this is going to look like. And multiple times we see... In Exodus, Moses saying, like, this is what God says, and the people saying, yes, like, we, we want to do this. Okay, Yahweh, we will follow you. We will obey. We want to take this blessing for ourselves. We want to be your people. And then Moses goes back up on the mountain for longer, for 40 days, um, and the Lord is having this time with him. Um, and after all of these things, right, that Israel has seen and been part of, and all of this, like, um, you know, saving work that God has done and been so real, um, they, they feel like Moses starts to take a little too long. He's taking a little too long, 40 days is a little too long up on that mountain. Um, and they decide that they want a God who will lead them on their terms. We don't like what's happening. He's been gone too long. We want to be led like the nations around us. Um, they decide to ignore God's divine command not to fashion an image for themselves, and they do it anyway. Aaron is like completely giving in to all of this, and he takes their gold, right, and he fashions a golden calf for them to worship, and they call the calf Yahweh, and they say, this is the God who brought you out of Egypt, Completely going against God's authority. Oh, which, side note, by the way, does anybody ever notice in that story? I don't know. It gets me every time when Moses comes back down the mountain um, and is questioning Aaron and says, like, what did this people do to you? Aaron's actual, his actual response. I am not making this up. You should go read it. He tells Moses, Aaron does, that the people gave me the gold. It sounds like my five-year-old. I'm so sorry. The people gave me the gold. I, I threw it into the fire, and this calf came out. That is actually his excuse. That is what he says happens. It's so completely beyond ridiculous. But um, anyway, Moses, God sends Moses back down. Actually, God threatens to wipe out the people, um, and, and Moses and God have this conversation. Um, and God, um, God says, you need to go down, and you need to deal with this. And it's so, so sad. The end result, again, is death. What happens is those that will follow Yahweh, those that will follow God, here. And they have to turn and kill those that will not and those that are going to refuse. And so we see death. We keep going in the Bible. Um, Joshua 7. If you grew up like in Sunday school, then you know probably all I'm thinking of, all the little songs And Joshua fought the battle of Jericho, right? Um, so, so there's this, this not even big battle that happens. God is making his name famous. 
um, and he's bringing the people into the promised land. At this point, Joshua is the leader, and God tells them what they're to do. They're to go march around the city of Jericho six times. They have all these different instructions. God's given them all these things they're to do, but none of it is really fighting um, because God is going to fight for them. And so that's what happens. But one of God's commands to them was, as this happens, then um, these things are to be completely devoted to destruction. You're not to take any of these things for yourself. They're all to be destroyed. Um, So we watch this great big victory happening, and um, Israel is celebrating that. And then there's this little tiny battle that needs to be fought. And Joshua has this, you know, conversation and he decides, well, it's, that is just really no big deal. We'll just send a few thousand of us. You know, everybody's worn out. You know, we don't, we don't have to send everybody because it's going to be fine. Um, and what happens is that they get completely whooped up on and they come and they come back. And so they inquire of the Lord. Um, and what they find is that actually, um, again, disobedience and sin has entered. Um, and there's a guy named Achan. And uh, he, uh, he openly confesses, well, there's a, there's a long process. I won't go into all of that. But when, once they finally realize, okay, tell me what you did. What have you done? Um, and he says, yes, like I saw, of all things, I saw this coat and I wanted it. And I saw this gold and I wanted it. And I knew that these things were to be devoted for destruction. But he decided to ignore the authority of the Lord and to take it anyway, because I wanted it. And the end result, death for he and for his family. Um, and so we're, this, I, we could go on and on and on watching this pattern play out in the Bible of, um, of what is taking place and of the fact that we are a fallen people. But lest you think this only happens in the Old Testament, we jump to Acts 5, where we see a man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira. And what's happening at this point is the early church is starting to form. Um, and right before that, it's so cool, it talks about genuine and real community in God's church and the fact that um, no one in the church was in need because, hey, if you're my brother and you need something, then I'm going to help provide for you. And they were really coming together and they were serving one another. Um, and this one man in particular, or several people, I, I suppose, it's just talking about the fact that they were selling their possessions And then they were coming and they were giving this money to the apostles to kind of be given out as was needed, right? People are doing this. Now, this was not a command of the Lord that if you have a field, you must sell it. People were just, this is out of the overflow of their heart and their love for the Lord um, and their desire to, you know, follow him in all things. They're doing this. Well, a man named Ananias and his wife, um, Sapphira, decide that they are... um, they are going to sell a field and they are going to pretend like they got $500 for this field um, and they're going to bring that and act like we want you to know we have sold this. It's all for the glory of the Lord and we're giving all of the money. But really they got, say, $1,000 and they just pocketed the rest. Um, and this is not like a command. They did not have to do this. Um, but they wanted glory and honor for themselves. They know they're not supposed to lie. They decide to ignore that and do this anyway because of what they want. 
Um, and so you can go and read that kind of playing out in Acts 5, but it's pretty devastating. And the end result is death. Over and over, the Bible shows us this pattern of fallen people. And um, what we actually see is that I want is my sinful and fallen nature. We are a fallen people, and I want is actually my nature. I ignore because I have become my own authority. I do, my response is to ignore God's authority, and so I do what I want anyway. And that's exactly what plays out even today. Um, you can think about your own life and, and the way that this goes. Um, I think about a really, really sweet and precious girl that was in my office last spring, conversation having with her of, how did I get here? Um, and just with tears in her eyes, talking through the fact that... Um, she was in love with a guy that wasn't a Christian. She was in love with a guy that, you know, he believes in God and he goes to church, but I see no fruit. And deep down, I know he's, he's really not a believer. And we try to have spiritual conversations, and it's like banging my head against a wall. And tears in her eyes because she wants what she wants. She wants him. She knew she shouldn't have started dating him in the first place. And then the difficult part being her response at this call to repentance and her just saying, how, you know, how did I get here and how did I, how did I do this and how did this end up happening? And that's kind of like an obvious one, you know. We know, right, like if, if we have been following Jesus for long that we're really not supposed to date people who are non-believers. Sometimes it's a lot sneakier than that, you guys. I think about... Um, I think about conversations with students who tell me that they want to get involved in community, they want to serve in the church, and they want to be part. It's just that they're in such a difficult major. And if they can just get through, you know, all of, you know, the next until graduation, then things will be different, then things will ease up. And they do not realize that they are completely setting themselves up for a lifetime of my work is my God. This is what I want. I'm going to ignore the authority of the Lord. I become my own authority. Back to that question in the garden of the serpent. Did God really say? Did he really say? Because I ought to get to decide. And then we have a response. The great news for humanity and all of us with a fallen and sinful nature is that God is good and kind. And not only did he clothe Adam and Eve in the garden, out of the goodness and kindness of his heart, he did something far better, and he sent Jesus to save sinners. And in him, this pattern is broken. And he gives us, instead of want, he gives us a new nature. Instead of ignoring authority, he gives us a new authority, and he gives us 
a new response. In Jesus, fallen people become redeemed people. And that's pretty stinking cool. So, how does this happen? Let me give you three ways. Um, I need a couple of readers. Okay, Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. Go for it. 1 through 10. Okay, good. Now read Ephesians 4, 17 through 24. right and to put on the new self Jesus does this by regenerating us another word for that might be sanctification right it's this process of being made new he changes my nature he changes my desires the more that I love him the more that I gaze at him the more that I know about him, the more that I want to please him, want to be like him, find true happiness in him, which is what I was made for. Okay, Um, the second thing he does, go to 2 Timothy 3, 10 through 4, 4. Three, ten through four, four. Yet from them all the Lord rescued me. 
profitable for teaching, for proof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every word, every good work. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off. So we have in Jesus a brand new authority, but not only that, the ability to submit to that authority. And that happens by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit through the Bible and through biblical community. But when I decide to follow Jesus, something truly miraculous does happen. The Holy Spirit comes to live inside of me. That I have the Bible. I have the Word of God. That I am no longer, like, I don't get to say what is. If I have a disagreement with Scripture, there's only a couple of options. Either I am misreading it and I don't understand it, or I am wrong. But I submit myself to this authority. And then finally, biblical community which is so vital, you guys. And I spent way too many years not realizing how important that is. Um, that you, You've got to have that because that allows you to see things that you miss. And I am so unbelievably grateful for the community in my life. Morgan's one of those. But she's able to love me in a way, and she's able to see things. And she'll say, and because she knows me, she'll say, yeah, but you're, you know, you have this tendency to kind of take this too far. you got to rein this in. And because she loves me, I'm not threatened by that. I'm grateful for it. I'm able to submit to that as authority in my life. Okay, the third thing. Go to Colossians 3, 1 through 17.
So because of Jesus, I have a new response that is obedience. He changes my nature. He helps me submit to authority. And he makes my response one of obedience. And the really, really cool thing about all of this um, and this beautiful picture of the gospel is that because of the truth of all these things, I'm able to live a gospel-centered life of discipleship, not just for myself, but I'm able to live out Matthew 28 and to be good news, the gospel, to the world. Go to Matthew 28, 16. Hey, you said you're always saying you wanted to read. You didn't know what you were signing up for. 16. Well, keep going. The end of the... The end of the chapter. It's a great commission, man. You can do it. <laughs> Guys, it is incredible that because of Jesus, we get Jesus. And because of Jesus, we get to be part of changing the world for God's glory and bringing light and being salt and being light. Not just to be saved to live a, quote, nice life, but to go out. That's why things like Spain are so important. That's why things like starting a conversation on campus with your lab partner about what they believe is so important. We're not just saved to enjoy being saved, but we're saved in this incredible way, and then we're to be sent out, which is pretty unbelievable that God would do that for us. Um, We are going to spend some time in response just worshiping the Lord here in a few minutes, but before we do, if we could dim the lights, I want to give you guys just a few minutes um, to go in prayer to the Lord and to just sit and be with Him, and maybe there's some sin that you do need to confess from right now. Um, maybe it's, it's something that you've just brushed aside because, hey, we all struggle. And the reminder of this, that no, because of Jesus, we're able to put sin to death. Maybe you need to talk to the Lord about that. Or maybe you just want to spend some time thanking the Lord um, for the fact that immediately in Genesis, um, we, we get that prophecy, 315, that says Jesus is coming. Um, and that Jesus was always God's plan and what, and what he has done. So we'll go ahead and do that. And then um, I think we will spend some time, Caleb and all the people that you have, we will worship the Lord. <laughs>